Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you. If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where I would invite you to turn this morning, page 808 in our church Bibles. In just a second or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 all the way to verse 5. And as you probably know, when we're through this morning, if you have a question about what we've said or sung or read, I would try to do my best to answer those questions for you in Our time together is done. Let's hear the word of the Lord. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, will you please this morning glorify yourself and please strengthen us now as we study your word, the Bible. And please help me as these verses speak of people in ministry in a particular sense. And as you know, Father, I dislike this task this morning for many reasons, but you are my master and I am your unworthy servant. So then please let grace abound in me, the chief of sinners and the least of all pastors, as your word and only your word is preached. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, one of the tremendous privileges of being married, I think, is the potential to have deep and meaningful conversations with your wife. I think one of the two things that I will most, um, all spared and Lord willing, enjoy uh, in growing old with my wife is uh, the time for... um, thoughtful, constructive conversations. And one of the things that my wife and I have agreed on in our conversations, I would say in the last few years, is that we think we live in a world which includes both of us that is tremendously sure of itself. That humanity, which includes both of us, is increasingly excessively, I would say, sure of itself, having no proper sense of their limits, and no proper sense of their inadequacy. That we do not know what we do not know. As Peggy Noonan wrote, op-ed, three years ago now from the Wall Street Journal, that classic line, I think, an entire generation with no proper sense of inadequacy. Now, certainly opinions have value, but not every one of them is right. And poise and courage and dignity and composure have merit. But being so certain of ourselves that we dare not be questioned is a perversion of those virtues. Having our own, if you would, um, self-story, our own meta-narrative as the driving force of our life differs greatly where the Bible tells us that we are part of his story and his uh, narrative. And that's where all of history is heading. And since Nietzsche and the God is Dead movement uh, found teeth, probably in the late to mid-60s, 
which gave rise to postmodern man who closed his Bible and believed by rights that I have a say in everything and by rights I should have eventually have my way in everything. By rights, my story is the story. Since that time, postmodern man has had a tremendous amount of difficulty with authority. And in our case this morning, divine authority. A tremendous difficulty with specific revelation. Least of all, people of faith. Yes, most people are okay with um, immediate personal revelation. In other words, God told me, so you can't challenge me. Many are fine with that. But the hard work of opening our Bibles, to understand to God, uh, to be frank with you, to some seems, well, quite boring. And although it's rarely said, it's the sinister's thought that says the Bible isn't very clear. By contrast, direct revelation, God told me, or I think, couldn't possibly be misunderstood, even though we have misunderstood our, our spouses and our parents and our children and our bosses so many, many times. So either postmodern man does not hold to God's word or they twist it or use it when it works for us, our story first, or we forgo it when it does not. Which then, as in the case of Christianity, a divine authority, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, giving clear, definitive, conclusive words from his word, the Bible, on everything that makes life life, is a tremendous challenge for postmodern man. A tremendous challenge for someone who wants their voice heeded and their way to yield it to their life to be their life. A tremendous challenge even in the practical part of just remembering God's truth, applying God's truth to a local congregation, or where to find that truth at all. But equally, it is a tremendous challenge to let God's truth frame all our thinking and therein transform our living, least of all, again, in his local church. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that Christ would have us be disciples and not critics. And in order for that to take place, we need a divine, settled, unchanging truth. Now, you're sensible people. You can think all that through. However, you take all that by way of principle in light of the verses that I've just read this morning and answer these questions. What makes a good pastor? Are they even necessary? What is the work of a Christian minister or pastor? Who's his boss? What is the test for a Christian minister? Who gets to give that test and when will it be? Now, as those questions came out of this mouth, I suspect postmodern men would have immediately began to give their own thoughts on those questions and either they would begin to answer them or maybe a particular pastor or person would come to their mind Contrast that with this morning in our case, wherein we look down in our Bibles and look for the answer from God's Word as you listen to God's servant, the pastor, who Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says is a gift to God's church to preach it out. And it is in the latter where our concern lies this morning. Now, in the case of the Corinthian church, as we consider the context, this was a divisive and so immature church. It was a worldly church, a church that had this predisposition to prejudge everything, a church that would do what God forbids and pick their favorite ministers, a church that was filled with arrogance, inclined to self-indulgence, as we'll learn, with a complete improper view of themselves. The church had a completely wrong view about Paul and about Paulus and about Peter, some of which were their pastors, current and previous, 
And so says Paul, these Christians in Corinth needed to understand just what their relationship is to be truly with those who lead them. In other words, what is the relationship of a congregation to be to those who minister among them? Whether in the specific context of Corinth, to those who were apostles, or as to those who would follow them as pastors or elders. So, these verses this morning by Dan of Principle apply not only to God's church in Corinth, but to God's church everywhere, to all those in Christian leadership. These are God's conclusive, definitive, therefore unchanging marks of his ministers and pastors and leaders. And the bridge between what he's already written in chapter 3 and what he's written in chapter 4 lies in those two words. You see them there in the NIV, the first two words of verse 1. So then... Or if you like, in this way. And you can see there, if your Bible's open, that the five verses that Paul gives has these uh, transitional phrases. Verse 1, so then. Verse 3, now it is. Verse 5, therefore. And so what he's doing is helping his readers follow his line of thinking that he is giving. And so what we're going to do this morning is use the exact same phrases to help us work through these verses. And we just have three points. How are we to regard a minister? what is required of a minister, and who may ultimately judge a minister. First of all then, how are we to regard the minister? That's verse 1. So then meant on to regard us as servants of Christ and those who are entrusted with the secret things of God. Now the word regard in the Greek has this sense of this is to be your sensible conclusion. In other words, based on what I've said in chapters 2 and 3, Okay, what did he say? Remember, only God grows the church. God gives the gifts. God gives the work. God gives the message. And God gives the rewards. And we'll learn God makes the judgment. Okay? Since that happens, this is God's bottom line on how you are to regard Paul, in the case of the Corinthian church, or pastors or elders or ministers in the case of the local church. And if you think about a moment... We're about ready to get some definitive things. And can you imagine how refreshing that is for people in leadership as opposed to having a hundred different opinions on what I should do and what I should say or how I'm going to say it or how I'm going to do it and what kind of personality that you'd want me to have or what kind of bents that you would like me to have or how I should behave behind the box or how I should behave on the floor. I mean, if that was the case, who could honestly live that way? I mean, if, if, past, if the equivalent of pastoral ministry was, say, tap dancing, I only know like two moves, and that's it. And then people would say, well, why can't you do the moves that the other guys do? Well, I don't have those moves. I only have two. And if a pastor or a congregation or elders fall prey to this, I can guarantee you what will happen in the congregation. At first, they'll idolize them. Then over time, they'll criticize them. And eventually, they'll ostracize them. And loved ones, that should never be the case. Therefore, in order that the church in Corinth might have uh, an understanding of of the nature of the servant ministry, which is given to people in these positions, Paul then gives two important pictures, if you would, or examples in verse verse 1. So there you go. The first one is a galley slave. So where does that one come from? It comes from the word servant in verse 1. A hyperrectus. It means under rower. Not just a rower but an under rower, someone who just not rowed, but rowed on the very bottom level of a ship in the ancient world, closest to the ocean floor. In other words, closest to death. So they were of the lowest rank. They had the hardest labor. They had the cruelest punishment, the least appreciated, and they had the heaviest load. And as a result of their 
painstaking, humiliating, hard labor, listening to their captain, the people on the deck, and the other levels were able to make some kind of forward progress in the ship. You take all that, you don't have to think too hardly to understand that Jesus Christ is the captain of the ship. And in listening to the captain, they serve him, the under rower, and they serve other people. And on the ship, whatever level they may be, they are always eventually on the bottom. And everyone benefits from the work of the lower level galley under rower slave. And that is what Paul says, how pastors and elders and leaders of the church are to be regarded. So in this, Paul is saying this idea of high status or, or celebrity status or high status celebrity, celebrity web status or popularity or relaxed, easy living attached to this work is not to be found in the mind of God. The work of a pastor, an elder, a minister is hard. And it is to be under the direction of Jesus Christ first. Question, are the leaders still servants of the church? Answer, yes. But the church is not their master. They only have one master. Therefore, if God's ministers look first and only to man's opinion and man's need, letting that set the paces, yes, it might appease them, but it will eventually fail them and then it will fail Christ as well. Now, are you with me? How then are we to regard those who are servants of Christ? Well, we should regard them as galley slaves. They have no rights of their own. Their whole business is to do what they are commanded, to do what they're told by the captain of the ship, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. The second picture then Paul gives is verse 1b. We ought to be regarded as those who have been entrusted with the secret things of God. And again, Paul uses a very descriptive verb here. It's the word entrusted, and it means a steward of an estate. That's what the Greek word is, or an estate manager. And this was someone in the ancient world who was appointed by the owner of the house, and the owner was an absentee, a landlord, and the owner chose someone who he trusted implicitly, leaving them the responsibility for all the dealings of his estate. The maintenance of the estate, the, the progress or the advancing of it, where there should be growth, there's growth, where there should be pruning, there's pruning, and so on. Therefore, the oikonomos, that's the word there for steward or entrust, says John Stott. Now I'm quoting him. Was responsible not to his fellows, those in the house, but to his Lord, the master of the house. He was not to, to be expected to exercise his own initiative, still less his own personal authority. He simply did his master's bidding and looked after his master's affairs. So as you think about that, no one will be in any doubt that part of the estate, uh, people in the estate will, will not be in any doubt that the steward is simply performing his assigned task. And the only reason why the steward has any significance at all is because he was given that task by the master of the house. Now you take that picture and apply it to the local church. And the only reason a pastor or elder or minister has any significance whatsoever is because Christ, the master of the house, has put them in the task. And if the master should remove them, then that person has nothing further to say in that place. Now, says Paul, in the same way that you understand this picture of a galley slave and a house steward, the ministers of the gospel, at the end of verse 1 there, has been entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, Paul mentioned this before in chapter 2, verse 7. This is what he said of 1 Corinthians. We declare God's secret wisdom, 
a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Okay, so this then is the great responsibility of the servant of Christ. He is to understand himself as being entrusted with the grave responsibility of guarding, teaching, preaching, defending, applying, and holding the line on the secret things of God. Okay, so what are the secret things of God? The secret things of God are that which was once hidden in the past, and now God has chosen to reveal his wisdom fully in the person of Jesus Christ, fully in the gospel. Here's a, here's a, a parallel text, Colossians 1, 26. The mystery, <clears throat> same idea here, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. This mystery, which is, here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, the mystery is the preaching of Jesus Christ only. The preaching of his word only. That's the mystery. <coughs> Excuse me. So if a pastor then tries to give you a steady diet of his personal thoughts, of his political, social, economical, or economical yeah, thoughts, he's failing his master. And the congregation will not be built up and mature and be useful. Why? Because it's only the secret things, Paul says, of God. The proclamation of Jesus Christ that can build up a congregation. And as you think about that, as long as we've been together, that takes time. It takes time for people to fully understand this. Why don't you talk more about X? Or why can't you say more about the condition of Y over there? Why don't you do that? Well, because I'm under orders. I've been given a trust. Got to be faithful. Okay, so this is Donald Coggan. He's an Anglican preacher. But he makes a good point. The Christian preacher has, set a bound, has a set boundary for himself. When he enters the pulpit, he's not entirely free man. There is a very real sense in which it may be said of him that the Almighty sets him his bounds that he shall not pass. He's not at liberty to invent or choose his message. It has been committed to him. And it is for him to declare and expound and commend to his hearers. It is a great thing. To come under the, the magnificent tyranny of the gospel. So if a pastor gives you bits and pieces of himself. Or if he gives you what itching ears wants to hear. He'll never be able to say what Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20 verse 7. As he takes his leave from the Ephesian church. This is what he said. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will or the whole counsel of God. In other words, I left nothing out. Jesus set my paces for my preaching, for my ministry, and I left nothing out. Now, loved ones, please listen very, very carefully because this is very, very important. When you piece all these things together, this is what Paul is saying. Yes, a minister or a pastor is a servant to God's people, but God's people is, they are not his master. And the subtlety there can't be missed. Okay, so I've quoted from an Anglican. Now, let me quote from... Um, a covenant church person. This is Jonathan Edwards. I am happy and prepared to be your servant. But you must know that you may not be my master. Now why would a fellow say that? I mean, was he, was he looking for a fight? No. Verse 1, do you see it there? How are we to regard the minister? So then men ought to regard us as servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. And those who've been entrusted, stewards, managers, dispensers of the secret things. Of God. 
And that takes us to our second heading, what is required of a minister. And, and the logic here flows perfectly. Here is the great requirement. And you'll notice there, if your Bible's open in verse 2, the great requirement is not like flamboyance. It's not attractiveness. It's not creativity. It's not innovation. It's not in your ability to speak, nor a certain kind of personality or temperament or because you're a real go-getter. All the things that so many might look for in our day. It was none of those things that Paul and so God said was a requirement. Why not? I mean, why can't those things be? Well, because they don't fit the picture at all that God gave of a slave and a steward, both of which are to do what they're, to- do what they're told by their master. So what is required of God? It's one word. It's faithfulness. You see it there? Now it is required of those given a trust must prove faithful, if you would, to that trust. So as you think about it, why in the world was Paul so attractive to Timothy as a young man in pastoral ministry? I mean, piece the story of Timothy together. Timothy was physically delicate. He was told to take a little wine for his tummy. He was naturally timid. In fact, Paul tells tells the Corinthians, when Timothy comes to you, put him at ease. Can you imagine that? Your pastor is coming. Make him feel relaxed. And Timothy was a young man, which is why Paul Paul told him, don't let anyone despise your youth. So therefore, having all these apparent weaknesses in the eyes of many, having none of those, you know, Mr. Terrific qualities, which really stand out in the crowd, Paul, under God, still chooses Timothy as one of his right-hand men. Why in the world would Paul do that? One word, faithfulness. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, I have no one else like him at all. Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 17. You can see it there. Timothy, my faithful servant. He just does what he's told. He does what he's told. Now, here's a wonderful little parable that I ran across uh, in my studies this week. A young man applied to work at a brick company and was hired. Your first job, says the employer, is to move all the bricks from the piles on the south end of the yard and take them to the north end of the yard. Without hesitation, the new hire began the task. By the end of the day, he was finished. The next morning, the employer informed the young man, take all the bricks in the north end of the yard and place them in the south end of the yard. With no objections, the young man got right to work. The whistle blew. The day finished. The bricks were piled neatly and smartly at the south end of the yard. On the third day, of his employment, the brick carrier heard the boss instruct him to move all the bricks in the south end and place them in the north end. And again, the young man raised no objection. He spent the day moving his bricks, those bricks, precisely as he was directed. When the fourth day came at the brick company, the employer summoned the young man into his office. He said, young man, for a long time, I've been looking for someone who I could trust to do the work without quibbling and do exactly what I wanted them to do. Maybe you wondered why you've spent three days just moving bricks back and forth. I was just testing your faithfulness to my orders. And you passed the test. And at long last, I found a man I can trust completely. You won't be moving bricks today. For I'm promoting you right away to the position of foreman. Ha ha ha, you say. Nothing like that ever happens in the quote, real world. Well, here's a story of a guy telling his son, hey, you know, will you die for the sins of others? They, they really couldn't give a rip about you. 
Will you, will you die, perfect one, for a sin-sick world by, 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 by death? Will you do that? Yes, Father. Yes, I will. You know, son, you always do what I say. You're so faithful. And so I'm going to give you the highest name. And I'm going to give you the highest place. Because you're so faithful. See, as humans, we, we tend to miss the simple things. Postmodern man wouldn't last probably day two of that story. So what is the criteria then? Well, listen, young men, those of you who are thinking about pastoral ministry. What, what is the, what is the uh, criteria entrusted to the ministers who are galley slaves and estate managers of the secret things of God? One word, faithfulness. So the size of our church, the talents we hold, uh, the tremendous personality we may have or may not have, that is not the basis of the judgment on the minister. The, you know, as you think about it, that might be the, the 21st century criteria. But, but you know, how, how any Christian magazine can do their yearly top 20 churches and top 20 pastors after reading 1 Corinthians 3 and after reading 1 Corinthians 4, I have no idea how they can do that. It might, might sell more magazines, but they're chucking their Bibles. And just think with me and just be really, really sensible here. How many pastors or leaders who've made that tremendous list and as the people look at that list and say, man, if our guy was more like that guy, have fallen flat on their face because they could not hold the gospel line or they started holding another lady or another man or they couldn't keep their hold on their greed or their ego and now they're gone. Gone. So being faithful to our tax, the task then presupposes accountability of the minister to someone. Okay, who's the someone? Who's going to check us out? And that's our final point. Number one, how are we to regard a minister? They are Christ's servants. They are the lower level servants. They are the household managers of the church of Jesus Christ. They're under orders. They're given a task. What is required of the minister? One word faithfulness to that task, the task their master has given them. Okay, the third one, who may ultimately judge a minister in these things? Well, look at verses three to five. I care very little, Paul says, if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Therefore, the answer to our question is absolutely no, no doubt. Who is the ultimate judge of a minister? God. God is the ultimate judge of a pastor, a minister, an elder. Now, if you look at Paul, verse 3, Paul gives then three potential sources of judgments that would usurp the judgment of God. And by the way, when you read this, Paul is not saying here that these people are not above examination or self-criticism or self-awareness. No, no pattern of, uh, the pattern of ministry and life for that minister and the teaching, it's all a given pattern. It's right there in the Bible. And as we hold to it or as we do not hold to it, the examination of that pattern is warranted by everyone in the church. I mean, every year I get, I get an evaluation by our elders, but the context here is clear. The Corinthians were going way past their right. They assumed 
that they, they knew the hidden matters of the hearts of Paul or, or Apollos or Peter. So their opinions on these men being so sure of themselves were coming down as judgments, as final statements. Therefore, what God says is no human can determine the, the legitimacy, the quality or the level of faithfulness in the minister's work. Ultimately, only God can. So Paul says, you can't do that. Verse 3, I care very little, and these are the three false judges, if I'm judged by you. He's talking about the Corinthian church. In other words, this is congregational pressure, manipulation, trying to tie the minister's hands, adulation, swelling the minister's head, antagonism, breaking the minister's heart. I'm not going to let you do that to me, Paul says. Then he goes on, no human court, literally man's day, as in a day when humanity judges the minister. This happens all the time on Facebook. Why don't churches stand up? Why don't pastors preach this? Verse 3. I will not succumb to popular demands. I will not subscribe to popular opinions. That's what Paul says. And then he goes to the third one. His own personal pressures. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. And by the way, that is the hardest one of the three for me personally. The danger of chronic self-examination. The danger of unrealistic expectations. Joe, each of these things are to mean nothing ultimately to the minister. Only God's assessment. And although in Paul's relationship to his responsibility of the secret things of God, as a galley slave, he says, verse 4, my conscience is clear. In other words, I'm not failing you. But Paul says this. Do you see it there? My conscience is clear. Fine, but that doesn't make me innocent. Because what may appear to Paul as gold and silver will appear to God on that day as hay and wood and stubble before the one who judges justly. So no minister is immune to genuine words of encouragement or evaluation. But no minister can stay faithful to his calling if the congregation plays God with his motives and his actions and his message. Because as human beings, our understanding and our knowledge of the facts are so defective and our criticisms and our compliments are also defective. We don't know the whole story and we don't know the heart of the man. So whenever you do anything in front of others, usually your first reaction is, how did I do? I mean, it's a wonder my wife shouldn't smack me every Saturday afternoon when I ask her the question, how did I do? Smack, that's what should happen. Paul says, ultimately, the only person's reaction that you should care about in the question, how did I do, is God. So it's not me, and it's not you, and guess what? I have to wait till when? To the very end, to find out God's assessment. So if you're the kind of person who rates everything in the church, Paul's statement to us would be, I don't care. I don't care. It's big enough that I'll have to give an account to Almighty God. I still want to do my best. But at the end of the day, being so limited in our understanding, we will let each other down if we try and do what God alone will do on that day. So in the case of the Corinthians, they were taking upon themselves that which they had no right to do, which was the determining of their minister's motive and his merit and his value and his work. And loved ones, again, no one is qualified to do this. Why, says postmodern man, what about my rights? Verse 5, Paul's point is just so straightforward, isn't it? 
God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. In other words, you don't start giving out the prizes until the master of ceremonies has arrived. Who do we think we are? The king is coming and he will pass out the prizes. He's in charge of the party. We can pour the punch. We can fill the cookie tray. We can sweep the floor. And we can put out the flyer, flowers. But we do not decide who gets the prizes. And when we intend to pass out the prizes before the king arrives, we are in a complete intrusion of what God intends for his people. And you know and I know that the whole bent of the human heart is to play God and pass out the prizes, thereby bringing division in the body of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, there are matters, Paul says, that are currently hidden. And only the glory of Christ, verse 4 or 5, on that day will shine the light on that which none of us can see. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. So, so what do we do? Well, we, we take our place, and then he'll call our name, and then he will judge our work. And that, loved ones, is difficult enough as it is. So beware of premature judgments. It will ruin a life. It will wreck our rewards and it may even cripple a church. So final question. How would you like to be a pastor? Seriously. There's the, we're, we're, we're diminishing in number, by the way. How would you like to be a pastor? You want people to live safely and soundly in God's love. You want God to win everything, which means, means people will, will have to lose some things. So you preach God's word, you pray, you serve, you lead. You preach God's word, you pray, you serve, you lead. And you watch and you warn and you take some hits for Jesus. And the only time, the only time when you will know 100% completely that your work is pleasing to the Lord is when? At the end. At the end. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray now as we prepare for the Lord's table. And if those will be serving, we'll come forward now. Father, we thank you that you know best and that you always give what's best. We ask that you would help us to understand these things this morning, to apply them to ourselves, to tell them to others for the honor of Christ's name in the world in which we pray. Amen.